Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the editor-in-chief of iFormerX, and I get to talk with our authors and our contributors on this podcast. iFormerX is a community of practice where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care and community practice. And if you're not already a member of iFormerX, please sign up. It's easy. Just visit our website at iFormerX.org and then click on the join or sign in link that's in that upper right of the navigation bar. Membership in iFormerX is free, so there's no cost to you if you sign up today. Neuropathic pain is a common problem that many of my patients when I worked at the VA faced, and it was often debilitating. Anyone who has lived with chronic pain knows what a negative impact it has on the quality of life. And currently, there are two FDA-approved treatments for painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy, pregabalin and duloxetine, but gabapentin and amitriptyline and other tricyclic antidepressants are are commonly used off-label. Actually, there's a third drug, which I was unaware of, which was approved for painful neuropathies, talbentadol, extended release, but personally, I haven't seen it used in practice, and given that it's an opioid analgesic and has significant abuse potential, I suspect that most clinicians don't prescribe or recommend it. In clinical trials, pregabalin and gabapentin, duloxetine, amitriptyline, and and nortriptyline have all been shown to be more effective than placebo for the treatment of neuropathic pain in patients with diabetes, but it's unclear if one of these should be the preferred initial treatment or whether combination therapy would enhance response. So when I saw the Option DM study published in The Lancet this past year, I asked our guests today, Dr. Nicole Hahn and Dr. Shilpa Kloki, to critically appraise this study and to write a commentary for iFormerX. Dr. Hahn is a clinical pharmacist specialist in neurology at Kaiser, Colorado, and Nikki is no stranger to iFormerX because she was an ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident at the University of Maryland in Baltimore some years ago when we first launched iFormerX, and she's continued to be an active contributor by maintaining our neurology clinical trials and guidelines resource page along with her partner, Dr. Clokey, but is also a clinical pharmacy specialist in neurology at Kaiser Colorado, and together, Shilpa and Nikki take care of a lot of patients with neurological disorders, including those with multiple sclerosis and epilepsy, as well as precept students and residents. So Nikki, it's great to have you back. And Shilpa, I love welcoming first-time contributors to the iFormerX podcast. It's great to have you both here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Stuart. It's, it's great to be back. And yes, it's been a long time. And thanks, Stuart, for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So before we talk about the Option DM study, I'd like to get your perspectives on the general approach to patients with diabetes and the management of peripheral neuropathy. What kinds of questions should we be asking patients? When is treatment helpful? And and what kinds of symptoms are not amenable to treatment? And are there any non-pharmacological methods that we should be recommending first before we, or in combination with uh, pharmacological treatments? And, and lastly, what drug therapies do you typically use in your practice and how do patient-specific factors influence your choice? I, I know that's a long question with multiple parts, but I'm hoping, 
I can get your insights and how you approach the treatment of peripheral neuropathy in your practice. Sure. I want to begin with a brief review of the pathophys because that does help to guide in the screening and evaluation of painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Early injury and loss of small fibers of the peripheral sensory neurons results in symmetric neuropathic pain symptoms such as pain and burning in the feet or fingertips. As the disease progresses, large nerve fibers become damaged and result in numbness and loss of position sense. These signs and symptoms continue to creep upward or proximally from the tips of toes or fingers in what is called a distal to proximal pattern. These descriptors are the hallmark clinical features that are used to guide in the screening and evaluation of painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Now, evaluation of DPN begins by taking a targeted clinical history, including assessment of risk factors such as older ages, duration of diabetes, metabolic syndrome and or hyperlipidemia, history of frequent falls. Your exam should then include assessing whether symptoms are related to small or large fiber injury. Pinprick and cold temperature sensation testing where responses are reduced or absent can indicate small fiber injury. Large fiber injury can be seen with abnormalities in vibration sensation, light touch sensation, and even ankle reflexes. Now, as you test to rule out other causes for peripheral neuropathy, you also want to pay close attention for symptom presentation in that distal to proximal pattern. You know, patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy who have neuropathic pain will usually consider it to be moderate to severe in nature. It's often worse at night and can cause significant disruption in sleep. The pain can be constant or not. It can be accompanied by hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia is where stimuli that would normally cause pain can cause extreme pain. The pain can also be accompanied by cutaneous allodynia. Allodynia is where certain things not expected to be stimuli, like bed sheets resting on your feet, become stimuli and can cause some significant pain. It's the neuropathic pain that is amenable to symptomatic treatment that we'll be discussing, whereas numbness, poor balance, and weakness are not. I just want to take a minute here, Stuart, to make a quick plea that patients with diabetes should be screened at least annually for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. The reason is, is that 50% of patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy may be symptomatic or even reluctant to report symptoms. It's the early screening and treatment that can drastically improve a patient's quality of life. So as far as our non-pharmacologic interventions, these largely don't have a role in the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy, but lifestyle modifications, including exercise and a healthy diet, are recommended for the prevention, although an anti-inflammatory diet could be considered as a recommendation. For our pharmacologic management strategies, the first thing is working towards improved glycemic control. And second is treating the painful neuropathy with medications. These are medications recommended in the guidelines that we summarize in our written commentary, the TCAs, SNRIs, gabapentin, pregabalin. In addition, there was a new class of medications added to the most recent American Academy of Neurology or AAN guideline, and that was the sodium channel blockers, specifically lecosamide and lamotrigine. Lastly, we have topical products like capsaicin cream or patch and lidocaine cream, 
Although these are most useful if patients have localized pain and it can be difficult for them to adhere to because they have to be applied multiple times throughout the day. As far as the approach to treatment, almost all of the guidelines agree that TCAs, SNRIs, gabapentin, and pregabalin are first-line options. And when it comes to choosing a medication, this is where patient-specific factors help guide the decision. We're choosing drugs based on the patient's other comorbidities, risk of side effects, monitoring, etc. I know I tend to recommend duloxetine as first-line because these patients may also have a behavioral health comorbidity. This drug is easy to titrate and easy to discontinue if needed. Now, venlafaxine can also be used, but I find that patients may have a harder time tolerating discontinuation if that were needed. Regarding our TCAs, I tend to try to avoid recommending a TCA as first line, unless the patient's younger and maybe they're also struggling with some insomnia, just because of the strong anticholinergic side effects related to this class. And because of those anticholinergic side effects, I always avoid these in elderly patients or consider avoiding if patients also have gastroparesis associated with their diabetes. As far as gabapentin versus pregabalin, I don't have a strong preference for one versus the other, but there are some factors that may influence my decision here. First is cost. While these are both available as generics, as with all of our other first-line medication options, cost can play a factor in patients who are underinsured or maybe have a high deductible plan. So in those situations, I would choose gabapentin over pregabalin, even though it has to be dosed more frequently. But let's say a patient had severe pain that's affecting their EDLs or ability to perform their work functions, and they need something that's going to work quicker, then I'm probably going to choose pregabalin, as it may work faster than gabapentin based on its non-saturable kinetics, less variable bioavailability, and easier titration. For both of these medications, one thing to keep in mind is they can cause weight gain and peripheral edema. So these are potential side effects that should be considered before starting one of these medications. And then lastly, I try to avoid the use of gabapentin and pregabalin in patients who are also taking opioids due to increased risk of morbidity and mortality. These meds were previously thought to have minimal misuse liability, but there have been recent increases in misuse reports. And in response, because pregabalin is already classified as a controlled substance, some states have taken action to increase regulation of gabapentin by reclassifying it as a controlled substance or adding it to drug monitoring programs. Now, Nikki, let's talk about the Option DM study. As I mentioned, it was published in the journal Lancet in 2022, and its official title is Comparison of Amitriptyline Supplemented with Pregabalin pregabalin supplemented with amitriptyline, and duloxetine supplemented with pregabalin for the treatment of diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, option DM, a multi-center, double-blind, randomized crossover trial. And thank God they have a nice acronym, option DM, for this trial because it's a mouthful. But I'm hoping that you can give us a quick summary of the study design and the key results. Definitely, Stuart. And you know, the title of the study is a mouthful for sure. The design of the study, while thoughtful and relatable, was also a bit complex as well. To simplify it as much as possible, patients were treated on each of the three treatment pathways mentioned in the title, as you said, over a one-year period. 
For each treatment pathway trial, patients were started on the first medication as monotherapy for the treatment of painful neuropathy and then assessed after six weeks. At that time, neuropathic pain was assessed using the numerical rating scale, or NRS. So the NRS is a scale in which patients rank their pain from zero, indicating no pain, to 10 being the worst pain imaginable. And if the patients had an NRS score of three or less, or mild pain, they continued their monotherapy med for the rest of that treatment pathway. And these patients were considered responders. However, for patients with an NRS score greater than three or non-responders, the second medication in the treatment pathway was added and continued for 10 additional weeks. And then after 10 weeks or a total of 16 weeks from when the first medication was started, the NRS was assessed again. For example, a patient in the amitriptyline plus pregabalin treatment pathway would start on amitriptyline, have that dose titrated and continued for six weeks. If that patient was a responder after six weeks, they would continue only amitriptyline for that full 16 weeks of the pathway. But if that patient was a non-responder after six weeks, then pregabalin would be added and titrated, and then both medications would be continued through the end of the treatment pathway. The primary outcome was to see if there was a difference in NRS during the last week of each treatment pathway. And while the NRS scores improved at the end of the 16 weeks for all pathways, there was no significant difference between the groups. For each of the three medication combinations, the NRS decreased by an average of 3.4 points. Other interesting results were that for patients taking combination therapy during a treatment pathway, 66% of them achieved at least a 30% reduction in pain from baseline, and 46% achieved at least a 50% reduction. Lastly, to quickly highlight some of the results related to monotherapy, 35% of patients responded to monotherapy only, so they achieved an NRS of three or less after that first six weeks. And then also after monotherapy, 40% of patients had at least a 50% reduction from baseline pain. So, Shilpa, I think the Option DM study provides us with some useful insights, but it still left me wondering about the best approach to treatment. It appears that amitriptyline, duloxetine, and pregabalin are relatively equal in terms of their ability to reduce pain, but I'm left wondering why the investigators elected to use amitriptyline, which has strong anticholinergic effects, rather than nortriptyline, which is far better tolerated. But what, in your opinion, are the strengths and weaknesses of this study? Are there any potential confounders that may have impacted the results? I hear you, Stuart. This was a very interesting study. And and I just actually want to start by saying this was an exciting study to read and delve into. There's some important aspects to this study that I wanted to call out. I particularly appreciated how the authors took great care in designing this trial so that it would address the methodological shortfalls of prior neuropathic pain trials. They tried to address things like inadequate power, fixed unrealistic dosing regimens, regimens that were either too short or had no washout between treatments and other crossover studies, studies that had inappropriate outcomes, They lacked evaluation of quality of life, patient functioning, mood, and sleep. I was really impressed that the authors took the time to address all of these aspects. And really what resulted was one of the largest and longest head-to-head 
pragmatic crossover clinical trials in patients with diabetic painful peripheral neuropathy and was one of the only to look at monotherapy followed by combination therapy. But Stuart, they did have to make some changes and were faced with some challenges. And in fact, I feel like this study was a bit plagued by Murphy's Law. This study suffered from a difficulty with recruitment and retention from the start, as this was a year-long commitment for patients with an extensive follow-up schedule where every pathway required a minimum of eight face-to-face weekly visits and the week-long washout periods in between treatment pathways. And then because of the difficulty in recruitment and retention, the authors ultimately had to redo the power calculation. They ended up using a larger effect size than the one the authors had initially chosen, which honestly was already different from typical prior neuropathic pain studies. And then, Stuart, really, who could have predicted that a once-a-century pandemic was going to hit and interfere with, again, retention and recruitment of this study? All in all, all of these set led to a study with a withdrawal rate that was higher than predicted. This was even more concerning because of the already reduced sample size. Only 65% completed two pathways and 59% completed three pathways, really affecting the interpretation of these results. And finally, while the authors thoughtfully designed this to be a real-world study, The UK population that was studied ended up being less diverse than the population that we see here in the United States. And I do feel that this lack of ethnic and racial representation in the study is an especially important difference and does have some effect of lessening the generalizability of the results to the U.S., because certain racial and ethnic groups here are known to have a higher prevalence of diabetes. So what's the bottom line? Will the findings from this study change what you do in practice? Are you more likely to recommend combination therapy versus switching to another class of agents, which I think is very common when a patient has a partial response to the initial treatment for their neuropathic pain? You know, I I think it's going to have some impact to my recommendations. Monotherapy is still going to be first line, and I'm going to try and use monotherapy as much as possible because I feel like less medications often equate to less risk of side effects and, of course, less co-pays for the patient at the pharmacy. But the study does give me new perspective on the potential for combination therapy. Previously, when I considered combination therapy, it would often be a systemic agent plus a topical agent, especially if that pain was localized. But with these results, I may consider a combination systemic agents if the patients have had inadequate responses to multiple monotherapy trials. In the option DM population, most patients were not treatment naive. And because of this, I would consider recommending a retrial of medications that may have previously been stopped due to lack of efficacy and possibly trying them again in combination. And lastly, I think the study reinforces recommendations that I've always been making, and that's to remember to titrate these medications to target doses and ensure they're continued for adequate trial durations. It'll be very interesting to see how the various societies and organizations will incorporate the results of these guidelines. For example, the American Academy of Neurology 
had just published their updated guidelines in early 2022 before this Option DM study was published. And it'll be interesting to see how the American Diabetes Association will incorporate the guidelines as well. Although I can tell you we've had somewhat of a preview in that their 2023 standards of care for retinopathy, neuropathy, and foot care already allude to the results of this study. Well, Shilpa, Nikki, thank you so much for being on the iFormerX podcast today and, and sharing your considerable wisdom with us. Well, tell us what you do in your practice. What do you typically recommend as your first line go-to drug for the treatment of painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy? And how long do you continue that treatment before deciding to either add or switch to a different therapy? If the patient is no longer experiencing pain, do, do you take a drug holiday to determine if the treatment is still necessary? I'd love to hear what you do in your practice. You can leave a comment by logging in and reading the written commentary on our website at iformrex.org. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, check out the literature evaluation and evidence-based practice series available through the American Pharmacists Association. We've partnered with APHA, and you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit by listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. Just click on that link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to send out a big shout out to James Lee at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy, who's been an active and engaged iFormerX contributor for many years. He's written commentaries, reviewed commentaries, and maintains our stroke prevention clinical trials and guideline page. Dr. Lee has encouraged his trainees to join iFormerX, and he's a role model clinician and educator. So thank you, James for your contributions to iFormerX and for all the work you do to educate the next generation of pharmacists. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.